We are still go with Apollo 11. You're listening to Apollo 11 Legacies. The following podcast captures an Apollo 11 legacy panel discussion recorded in Huntsville, Alabama, as part of the Apollo 11 50th anniversary celebration. The eagle has landed. The panels feature people with a personal connection to the Apollo project. Apollo 11 Legacies is produced through a partnership with Intuitive Technology and Research Corporation and WHNT News 19. Three, two, one. Huntsville, on the other hand, only had 12,000 people. <laughs> we were expendable, weren't we? But those are important facts of where do you build a weapons facility? Or, as the years will come, a facility where you might create big explosions with a big rocket. And so the land we now know as Redstone Arsenal became home to a pair of arsenals and chemical munitions manufacturing in World War II. A boon to the local economy for sure, but so much more. The speaker is retired Brigadier General Robert Stewart. He was an aviator, a helicopter pilot who flew in Vietnam. He was an Army test pilot. He was the Army's first astronaut, and he supported SDS-1, 4, and 5. He would eventually fly on two shuttle missions, logging 289 hours in space. Twelve of those hours were extravehicular activity. General Stewart was part of the first untethered EVA. While training for yet another shuttle mission, he was promoted to Brigadier General and left the astronaut corps. He eventually was part of the U.S. Space Command in Colorado. General Stewart retired from the Army in 1992, and he now lives in Huntsville. As you are about to hear, he is an authority on the history of Redstone Arsenal and the work there that eventually led to Americans walking on the moon. First things first, of course, how the arsenal that is a fixture for us now came into being. This was recorded at the Discovery Theater at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. You, you know the story of Einstein's driver? Yeah, he, he, Einstein had this driver for years and years. driver's name was Fred, and he would drive him to everywhere he go, and then Fred would sit in on the lectures. So one day, uh, Albert and Fred were driving down the road, and Einstein said, uh, Fred, you know, you've heard this lecture so many times, I'll bet you could give it yourself. And Fred said, uh, well, maybe I could, sir. Well, let's try it. So when they got to the venue, uh, Fred and Albert changed clothes. And Albert Einstein walks into the uh, auditorium escorting Fred in his uh, chauffeur's livery and everything like that, carrying the valise that he put on the stage for, now Fred the driver is at the lectern. The presentation went superbly. Couldn't have been better. Right up until the question and answer session. Now there's a guy in the audience who was uh, a pretty bright guy and he asked a question that was cogent to the presentation, required a very difficult technical explanation, and Fred was like a deer caught in the headlights. But Fred was clever. He said, sir, that question was so basic, I'll bet my chauffeur could answer it. <laughs> so, look at my chauffeurs over here. I got a whole half a room full of chauffeurs. If I run into problems and you all have questions that I can't handle, we do have a lot of people here, and if I defer to them, don't be shocked. 
8 a.m., February the 3rd, 1984, STS-41B was launched from Pad 39A at Kennedy Space Center. Eight minutes later, as I crossed the Kármán line, I became the first Army astronaut, the first soldier to fly in space. And I thought that was so long overdue because the U.S. Army gave birth to the space program right here in Huntsville, Alabama with the launch of Explorer 1 on the uh, January 31st, 1958, just 84 days after we were given the go-ahead to do that. And it's that story I wanted uh, to tell you that today. It's, it's full of intrigue, it's full of political backstabbing, it's full of typical government operations, I guess is what I should say. Um, you'll hear more about Explorer 1 satellite as I talk, and about the political struggles that the Army endured while the USSR rubbed our nose in the dirt of satellites uh, Sputnik 1 and then Sputnik 2. All the while, we had a rocket out in the South 40. Uh, we not only had a rocket, we had a satellite. We could have launched this thing at least one, possibly two years before the Soviets launched theirs, but the political problems and the political backstabbing won out. This lecture is primarily about how Redstone Arsenal came into being in the first place. And we'll get to the space part later, but bear with me because I'm going to go back to 1939. As a matter of fact, September the 1st, 1939, when uh, the German armies invaded Poland and the world stood on the brink of World War II. Now bear in mind, this is just 21 years after we had endured the horrors of World War I, with its gas warfare and trench warfare. All of this stuff was freshly in the minds of the people, as was the knowledge that the 1899 and 1907 Hague Conventions signed by most of the world, banning, and I'll quote, asphyxiating poisonous or other gases and all of the analogous liquids, materials, or devices and bacteriological methods of warfare. Signing that convention didn't do a whole hell of a lot of good, did it? Because World War I rolled around. And now we're between the wars. We're now up to 1925 when the U.S. was party to uh, the Geneva Convention, which again, we promised not to do germ or gas warfare. But, Everybody remembering what happened in World War II, or excuse me, World War I, sort of reneged on that. We signed the treaty with the reservation that we would use chemical weapons in response to chemical weapons being used against us. Most of the signatories to this 1925 treaty actually made that same stipulation. Now the army, we soldiers, we don't like that stuff. We wanted to destroy the whole mess just like we want to destroy all nuclear weapons because we're the ones who get hurt by this stuff. But the world is not that way. Uh, at the turn of the decades, the Army's sole chemical weapons production facility was at the Edgewood Arsenal near Bel Air, Maryland. Obviously, a site near Baltimore, Maryland had a couple of disadvantages. It was closed, it was subject to attack, 
and it was near a big city that uh, causing by uh, that uh, a gas leak or something like that could cause tremendous destruction. And we'll talk about the chemicals that would do that just shortly. So the Chemical War Warfare Service, henceforth I'll call that the CWS, under the command of Major General Walter Baker, sought to erect another chemical plant so that we could have a stockpile of weapons to use in case somebody attacked us. There were five sites proposed. Three of them were eliminated quickly because they were within 300 miles of the coastline. Final selection came down to Huntsville, Alabama, Millington, Tennessee. Now, Millington had good access to the Mississippi River, but it was located in a suburb of Memphis, which is a rather large city. So if an accident happened, it could be an utter, absolute disaster. Huntsville, on the other hand, only had 12,000 people. We were expendable, weren't we? But those are important facts of where do you build a weapons facility? Or, as the years will come, a facility where you might create big explosions with a big rocket. So Huntsville, Alabama figured greatly in both of those. Major General Baker was retiring from the Army and would leave the command of the CWS up for grabs. Now, Baker had working for him an enterprising young colonel named William Porter, who followed the path of promotion through Annapolis, through the Coast Guard, to the Army, and finally to the Chemical Warfare Service. A young representative from Huntsville area named John Sparkman, y'all heard of him, I guess, discovered that there was going to be an acquisition $50 million facility would go somewhere and Representative Sparkman called Senator Lister Hill and said, man, wouldn't it be nice if we could get that $50 million poured into Huntsville? And they agreed it was right. Now, Porter is talking with Representative Sparkman. Porter was an ambitious man. Uh, Porter said, man, I really would like to be a general. And Sparkman said, well, why don't you go over and see my buddy Lister Hill? We've been talking about this, and Lister Hill is a very, very powerful man. Hill served as a representative and served on the Armed Services Committee before he became a senator, and now as the senator, he is the majority whip. So Porter goes over and he talks to Lister Hill about the possibility of putting the $50 million facility in Huntsville, Alabama. And Lister Hill talked to him about the possibility that if that happened, he would support him being promoted to general officer and be given command of the Chemical Warfare Service. And as a coincidence, all that happened. Isn't that wonderful? As a matter of fact, Lister Hill just might be the unsung hero, the, pe the person that nobody really remembers when they talk about Huntsville and the arsenal. Huntsville Selections was announced on the July the 3rd, 1941, and the facility to be known as the Huntsville Ordnance Plant was started soon thereafter. You're listening to retired Army Brigadier General Robert Stewart. We'll return to his history of Redstone Arsenal in just a moment.
We return now to the words of retired Army General and Army astronaut Robert Stewart. He's talking about the creation of Ritzstone and Huntsville arsenals for chemical weapons and other manufacturing in World War II. But requirements for chemical production facilities were increasing rapidly as it looked like the world was going to go ahead and commit the insanity of global war for a second time. The Chemical Warfare Service on December, in, in December of 1941 announced a new plant also in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And later during the war, when we found we needed even more of a facility, another facility located near Denver to be known as the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. You might have read about the Rocky Mountain Arsenal recently as a site of a super fun cleanup effort. Redstone is too, but we just managed to keep it out of the news. What would be the, in the future become Redstone Arsenal was originally named the Huntsville Arsenal and was under the command of the Chemical Warfare Service. Colonel Rollo C. Ditto, arrived to take command of the Huntsville Arsenal on the 4th of August, 1941, and ground was broken for the construction the next day. By March of 1942, its first production facility was in operation. Now, recognizing the economy and the safety of completed military rounds, we have the Huntsville Arsenal making all of this obnoxious chemical stuff, and the Army Ordnance Corps thought, well, why don't we build a plant right next door so we can take all this noxious stuff and put it into shells and bombs and grenades and not risk taking it around the country. And that was a really good idea, and that's what they did. The Army Ordnance Corps began construction of that separate facility to be called the Redstone Ordnance Plant, which became the original Redstone Arsenal. It was under the command of Harold D. Hudson, and construction for the plant began on October 25th, 1941. A local observer commented that Huntsville became a beehive of activity, but lacked the organization. I guess bees are pretty organized here. Population of Huntsville more than doubled during this time frame. From 12,000, we went up to 15 to 20,000 workers as workers piled in to, to do this construction work. A third activity was added in 1942, and it was called the Huntsville Depot. If I've got making the chemicals here, packaging the chemicals here, I need a place to store the finished rounds somewhere down close to a river so that I could ship them out and get them distributed. And that's why Huntsville Depot is still the most evidence of the Chemical Warfare Service in Huntsville. They owned all those igloos down by the river which you really don't want to go hiking around. Why the name Redstone? <laughs> well, it's obvious. It's in reference to the huge number of red boulders we see all over the place around here, right? Now, now we have plenty of gray limestone and sandstone rocks in this area, but I have yet to see one that is colored red. If you find one, I would certainly like to see it. Possibly it was in reference to the red clay dirt that underpins this entire area. But somehow, Red Clay Arsenal just doesn't cut it as a name, does it? And anyway, I think the most likely reason is that someone thought Redstone was a cool name. And they convinced a lot of other people to think that Redstone was a cool name. And it, it does sound kind of cool, doesn't it? To secure river access, 
For the complex, the TVA granted the Army access to 1,250 acres of riverfront property, which is down where those igloos are. In construction of the arsenal and the three facilities that would occupy that territory, about 550 panel, our families were displaced to make room. Later, Huntsville Depot was renamed the Gulf Chemical Warfare Depot. Now, I have a theory about this, too, because if I've got the Huntsville Arsenal and the Huntsville Depot and the mail gets mixed up a lot, I think they just changed it just because they were getting the mail mixed up. But anyway, it doesn't matter because the whole complex was renamed in 1943 as Redstone Arsenal. Now, if you're confused by all the naming and renaming and reorganizing, take comfort in the fact that it's been this way for a very, very long time with large installations. What did the Chemical War Service plant actually produce in support of World War II? Well, it's a bit of a witch's brew if we get right down to it, but remember what I said, that no military commander in his right mind would ever use any of this stuff. It's a political weapon. It's a weapon for the politicians to dangle in front of each other. Phosgene. Y'all ever heard of phosgene? Phosgene is evil stuff because it was so stealthy. Phosgene just smells like new mown grass. So you get a nice whiff of this new mown grass and you think, oh, that's pretty cool out here on the battlefield. You don't die until tomorrow. You might not even know you're sick. The cause of the death would be pulmonary edema. Phosgene gas was responsible for 85% of the chemical deaths during World War I. It was six times as lethal as chlorine. Primarily, it was inhaled. Lewisite. This stuff is so bad, we refused to even use it during war. It was a blister agent with arsenic doped into it, and it's lethal through inhalation or through skin contact. Mustard gas. This is the one everybody knows about. You see the clouds of mustard gas floating over the battlefields of World War I. It was the leading chemical agent of casualties, though not deaths. Because one of the terrible things about warfare is if we can create casualties, they require other soldiers to take care of them. And I'm eliminating more people from the battlefield. It's not as, as effective as, uh, as uh, phosgene in the open air because the wind dilutes it a little bit. But it is a blistering agent both outside and inside the body. It creates horrendous thermal blisters in, and inside produces death by blistering in the lungs and in the trachea. White phosphorus. This stuff burns with an intense heat and it's virtually impossible to quench the fires. It was the primary component of the incendiary munitions that we made here in Redstone for use against Japan. It was mounted in bombs and grenades and shells and in fact, 2.75 inch folding fin aerial rockets and was one of my favorite things to shoot in Vietnam. I, I'm sorry about that. But we had a lot of more benign agents, tear gas. For those of you, have anybody ever experienced tear gas? Oh yeah, I know you have, Ron. Uh, 
it's really not that bad. Uh, it causes you to cough and your eyes to water and everything. I remember one time I was tear gassed uh, on purpose and uh, <laughs> I wasn't doing anything wrong. But I had a bad cold, cleared that sucker right up. Man, when I walked out of that gas, I was feeling good. I don't think we can market this at Walgreens. Though. <laughs> Incendiary munitions, smoke generators, small solid rocket motors are the things that were produced at this complex around here. In fact, people have said that it's really easy to know what color of smoke grenades and things were being produced at Huntsville because you saw people walking around in Huntsville that were red and green and purple because this dye would not wash off. It had to be worn off as time went by. Uh, the plant also produced carbonyl iron, which was used extensively in radar and other electronics. It was good at what it did. It won the Army-Navy E Award for excellence uh, nine times during World War II. Now, since Redstone was producing incendiary weapons primarily for use against Japan, we needed an airfield here because the 6th Army Air Force bombers needed to test these munitions. The presence of this runway and a hangar complex that was built at the same time placed us as a prime candidate for another very important facility, which we'll talk about later. Three days after the Japanese surrender, Huntsville Arsenal was put on standby status, but was kept open as a primary storage site for the Chemical Warfare Service munitions. Other uses for the facility were manufacturing of gas masks for the, and for the demilitarization of the incendiary weapons. The workforce was reduced overnight from 4,400 to about 600 people. Yes, the arsenal we take for granted now was in a bad way after World War II. We'll hear more of that history from retired Army Brigadier General and astronaut Robert Stewart in a moment. More now from retired Brigadier General Robert Stewart and the history of Redstone Arsenal World War II is over and changes are happening. In 1947, the Huntsville Arsenal was declared excess by the Army and was to be sold by 1 July 1949. Remember that. Redstone Arsenal has never been for sale. Huntsville Arsenal was for sale. So we began madly looking around for some facility to move in to these buildings and this infrastructure that was already in place. And we found somebody in 1948. It was the Keller Motor Company. George Keller had visions of Huntsville being the Detroit of the South. Now Keller worked for a guy who was from Huntsville named Albert Russell Erskine. Albert Russell Erskine is buried in a mausoleum out at Maple Hill Cemetery. If you want to walk around for the next time we do a cemetery stroll, I highly recommend that you go out there and do that. But Keller worked for Erskine, who was the president of Studebaker Motors Corporation. So we very nearly became a very powerful automotive center, particularly when Henry Ford, after World War I, tried to buy Wilson Dam from the government. He offered them $5 million, but they figured that wasn't quite enough. 
and his idea was to build an automobile plant in Muscle Shoals. Muscle Shoals was very excited about that. So they built the infrastructure, the places to put the houses for all the workers that were bound to run in here, and nobody came. But when I was a kid, I used to could go rabbit hunting, walking down sidewalks, leaning up against a lamp pole, popping rabbits. I think my favorite rabbit hunting place was probably 8th Street in Maine, in, in what would have been Muscle Shoals City. That idea was quashed. But it seems that the Tennessee River became very popular as a source of hydroelectric truck power and barge transportation and fresh surface water, which was important for all of the industrial facilities that are, were going to move in and have moved in along this river since I was a kid. In 1949, a two-year-old United States Air Force, because the Army threw them out in 1947, uh, began searching for a new place to put an air engineering and development center. Candidates were, in the order uh, that the Air Force prefer preferred them, Moses Lake, Washington, Grand Wash Cliffs, Arizona, and a to-be-named site in the Tennessee Valley. The Tennessee Valley had abundant electrical generating capacity, which would be required and readily available surface water. But Moses Lake had an old defunct Air Force base and the Air Force wanted to move into that facility. There was a runway in place, everything was cool. But the Air Force Chief of Staff didn't like it because he felt it was too close to the coast and too vulnerable to attack. A water dispute between Arizona and California knocked Grand Wash Cliffs out of the equation, leaving the Tennessee Valley. Huntsville was the preferred site because we had a nice runway, we had chemical, we had the, the, the facilities, the buildings, the housing uh, readily available, which would save the Air Force a lot of time and money. And so the Air Force began thinking, why don't we build our Air Development Center in Huntsville on the old Army Arsenal? But once the Air Force showed interest in moving in, the Army began to rethink its decision to sell the arsenal. Seizing on the Army's rethinking of the sale, Senator Kenneth McKellar of Tennessee made his move. He offered the Air Force facilities, uh, which was an old Army training camp near Tullahoma, Tennessee, known as Camp Forest. He offered them assistance in pushing required legislation through Congress. And on April 28, 1948, the former Army training camp was announced to become the site of what would become the Arnold Engineering Development Center. But it really wasn't inter-service rivalry that drove this. The Army did have a new mission for Redstone, developing and testing rocket systems. Colonel Holger N. Toftoy was the impetus behind a move that reset the course of Huntsville, and it's one of the most fascinating chapters in our history, the Odyssey of the German rocket team from Germany into Huntsville. In 1945, as hostilities in Germany were drawing to a close, the Army instituted a hunt for the scientists and engineers who had produced some of Germany's highest technology weapons in hopes of bringing those and some weapons, too, if we could find them, uh, to the U.S. 
The effort was called Operation Paperclip and was headed by Colonel Toftoy, who would become a huge player in Huntsville's future. But let's go back a little bit before that. It really began when a German artillery captain named Walter Dornberger was assigned to head up a military rocket development program. And as Heidi mentioned, he chose as his principal assistant a teenaged Werner von Braun as his technical director. And by the way, it is von Braun. Uh, people, he got really upset, I'm told, when people called him Braun, von Braun. I guess I don't blame him. Von Braun received a doctorate in the field of rocket propulsion from the Friedrich Wilhelms Universität of Berlin under the sponsorship of the German army. German military rocketry research was centered on the island of Usedom in the Baltic Sea at a facility named Pinamundi after the nearby Pini River. And Colonel now, Doctor of Engineering, Dornberger commanded and von Braun was technical director. In reflecting, Usedom was well chosen because it was remote, so that if a large explosion occurred, it might have gone unnoticed except by some local cows. Come to think of it, might be the reason Huntsville has prospered so much in this area. Now, all you Huntsvillians, don't get riled up. I was raised 50 miles from here. I know what Huntsville was like in the 1940s. Private first class Frederick P. Schneikert of the anti-tank company, 324th Infantry Regiment, 44th Infantry Division, had no idea that in the early morning hours of May 2nd, 1945, he was making the first steps towards sending man to the moon. Riding down the road toward him on a rickety bicycle was a young blonde German man dressed well in a shirt, uh, nice pants, a, cl a clean tie, a uh, blue-gray ankle-length leather coat. He appeared well-fed, not like the rest of the German civilians that he encountered. Private Schneikert's first words on seeing this man and climbing out of the culvert in which he was hiding. People were still trying to kill you at this stage of the, of the war. He said, come forward with your hands up. He spoke it in German because Private Schneikert's mother, or grandmother, was a native of Bamberg, Germany and had taught him German as a child. But his order really was validated and took form because of the M1 rifle he held in his hands with the safety off. To make the morning increasingly strange, the Germans said, it's vitally important that I see Ike as soon as possible. He said his name was Magnus von Braun. Von Braun asked Schneikert to go with him about four kilometers away to a German gas house named Haus Ingeberg where his brother, the inventor of the V-2 rocket, was staying with a large contingent of its engineering staff. Sounded like a perfect setup for an ambush and assassination to the private. So he elected instead to take his prisoner back to his headquarters company, where he turned him over to a first lieutenant, Charles Stewart, a counterintelligence officer 
attached to that unit. Von Braun told Stewart that the group of scientists were in grave danger from an SS unit commanded by Obergruppenführer Hans Kammler. Obergruppenführer, equivalent of a three-star rank, he ranked just below Heinrich Himmler in the SS. And as a matter of fact, he might have even ranked a little bit above Himmler in the SS because Hitler had given Kammler not only military control over the rocket team, but of all German advanced weaponry, including uh, Die Glock. Now, if you, haven't, if you don't know about Die Glock, this is the conspiracy theorist time machine that the Russians or the Germans would have had. But anyway, Kammler had control of all of this stuff. But Kammler had also been given orders not to let any German rocket scientists fall into Allied hands. He was to kill them if that was going to happen. Now, whether he would have actually done it or not, it'll forever be a matter of conjecture, as is the ultimate fate of Hans Kammler, because he's buried in at least four to six different places in Germany with people attesting that they saw it happen. Given safe passage by Stuart, von Braun was taken back to his bicycle, which, by the way, I understand we have here in the, in the center. I don't, I've never seen it myself. Uh, and he returned to Haus Ingeberg. The next day, he returned with his brother Werner and the group's military commander, Major General Walter Dornberger. Kind of got fast promotions in there. And a couple of other vital scientists to formally surrender the group to the U.S. Army. Being debriefed by his new captors, Warner von Braun told a fantastic story. He said that if they had achieved a production rate of 200 V2s per day, the course of the war might have changed. He claimed that they were on the verge of producing a rocket that could reach New York. What if Werner Heisenberg had made more progress on the atomic bomb as Dr. von Braun realized his rocket that could reach New York. One American soldier present at the interrogation observed, if we haven't captured the greatest scientist of the Third Reich, we've certainly taken its greatest liar. So World War II is over and things are about to change for Redstone Arsenal, North Alabama, and America. The story continues in our second podcast with retired Brigadier General and Army astronaut Robert Stewart. We invite you to listen to that and our other podcast as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon mission. Go to the Apollo 11 tab at the top of our website, whnt.com, where you'll also find other important items from North Alabama's contribution to America's manned spaceflight history. Apollo 11 Legacies is produced in partnership with Intuitive Research and Technology. Content made possible with the U.S. Space and Rocket Center's Legacy Panel Lecture Series. Music provided by Megatracks.